Okay, recording. Hi, everybody. Shmuel Shohan for the Transplant Infectious Disease Podcast. Today, we have two guests, both of which are associate professors of medicine at Albert Einstein College of Medicine. We have Yoram Puyas, who has worked extensively as a clinician, educator, and researcher in the field, and is the curator of transplantid.net. That's T-R-A-N-S-P-L-A-N-T-I-D.net. And we have Vagish Amige, who is an associate professor of medicine also at Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx, who also works as a clinician, educator, and researcher with focus on transplant infectious disease. Hi, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you so much for having us on your on your podcast. Thank you so much for being a part of it. And I'm very excited to learn about all the different things that you're doing. But I thought maybe we would start with Yoram. Can you uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, journey, how you got to transplant infectious disease? Well, since you're asking about the journey, actually, I started off as a protein crystallographer. Um, and I was going to be one of those physician scientists and, and who's going to be doing, you know, 90% bench research. And in fellowship, I just found myself being attracted to the, to transplant infectious diseases due to the complexity of the patients, the multidisciplinary nature due to the fact that um, really just transplants are just a, a fascinating and life-saving, uh, life-saving measure that are really a culmination of so many different fields of surgical and medical and immunological practice. And so um, I just found myself drawn to that as I decided that I wanted to be a clinician, then I got additional training in transplant ID. So it was really, it, it was one of those things uh, that without having been so deeply exposed to it in fellowship, I might not have known quite so much about. And so I think this is sort of a, a lesson for all of us to keep an open mind there. Great. And where was your fellowship? So uh, my fellowship was at Columbia Presbyterian. Mm -hmm. And after that, I spent an extra year uh, focused on transplant at Tufts New England Medical Center. So are you a New Yorker? Well, it depends on how you define New York. <laughs> I'm from Buffalo, New York. So being from a Western New York, which, which is distinct from upstate New York, both sort of linguistically and culinarily particularly. But I also uh, did my medical and graduate training at Albert Einstein. So I had, I had spent so long in the Bronx and then my residency and fellowship were in New York City as well. I was away in New England for a few years, but I always wanted to come back. So uh, this is like a lot of people who spent time around New York, we developed this feeling justified or not that New York City is the center of the universe. There are many, there are many who would disagree with that, and I'm not going to to argue with them. Well, the thing about the universe is it's probably round, so anywhere is the center, but... <laughs> Well, we'll discuss gen more more uh, general relativity for another day. Yeah. <laughs> so are you part of the Bills Mafia? Can I tell you that I really stopped watching football after their fourth Super Bowl loss in a row? Oh, I see. Oh, yeah. All right. Uh, Fagish, tell us, uh, and I'm hoping you're, I'm pronouncing your first name correct. Uh, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey in infectious disease. And if I messed up your name, please correct me. So I, unlike Yorm, who made a conscious decision to go into transplant ID, I sort of went into it a little bit by accident. I mean, I did my fellowship in Chicago. It is a major transplant center. Um, I actually did extra year of fellowship to do, to get a master's in research methods. And I always enjoyed my rotations, um, especially when I was rotating with Kate Mullane, who's well known in the 
field was really enjoyable person around with and was very well trained in it. And so I was looking for faculty jobs. Uh, but my initial take was, well, I mean, I wanted to do HIV in, in, in clinically and do HIV research, but was still hoping to have a chance to cover transplant services when I rounded. And you know, I, got a, I took a faculty position at Baylor. I was in Houston for five and a half years. Um, initially, just I was doing mostly just general infectious diseases consults, but then they started a transplant ID service. They were initially hired one attending. The workload quickly grew into way more than one person could handle, but I would cover for him when he was on vacation and or ops needed a break from service. And there was really one consult that led to me getting to the field. I had a, I had a liver transplant patient and a bunch of ventilator. And everyone just like, oh, and it was had pneumonia. Um, and everyone was just writing like pneumonia, you know, broad spectrum antibiotics. And then into the consult, I sat down with my intern and we took a very detailed social history from the, from the patient's family that before he'd gotten sick, he'd gone camping out in the woods. He'd shot, skinned, and ate a deer. And then they went into a cabin, but there was mold all over the cabin walls. So he chopped all of the mold moldy wood out with an axe and it was just so on and so forth it was like an id boards question Sounds uh, like it. <laughs> and the transplant docs the surgeons and doctors when they were going rounds for days afterward they would just crack these jokes but it was like something that was very memorable and that i did a very thorough and detailed console and it, it somehow trans it transformed from me sort of covering the service to me being an equal partner in it and, and becoming more and more of my professional identity over time. I still continue to do HIV clinic. And yeah, I, I was um, recruited diet and help when they were starting a lung transplant program because they wanted clinicians who were experienced with the complications of lung transplant that are infectious, of which there are many. And I've also taken on other roles here. I'm the director of medical student research. And that's about half of my time. The other half is HIV and transplant infectious disease. Wow, very busy time. And I would say that your experience in terms of bringing together the history, the physical to a certain extent, and the laboratory testing is is one of the real joys and the way to do transplant infectious disease correctly in that the history is so important in our patients, but also sometimes you can get this wild history and it's just biliary sepsis. So uh, learning how to balance the two is, is so important. Yoram, tell us about this project that you've been leading, which, which is absolutely awesome, uh, the Transplant ID Net. Thank you very much for the plug. Like uh, a lot of things like this, this sort of started as a homegrown project. In my previous job, before I was at Montefiore, I was at Roger Williams Medical Center in Providence, Rhode Island. It had the only bone marrow transplant unit in the state of Rhode Island, which made me the bone marrow transplant ID doc for the state of Rhode Island. And that was so I was so one of the reasons I was hired was for my formal immunocompromised training. And I saw that for for the fellows, it was really crucial to build up a library of references that were going to be clinically useful. And this started out with some guidelines and so on, and then a few seminal papers, and then it grew and then sort of realized that it had to be it was worthwhile for it to be cross-referenced. And um, so that had sort of grown. And then when I came to Montefiore, I extended that for solid organs. And then one of the things that has struck me in our new information economy is that we have so much duplication of effort from one institution to another. And I'd seen like there was a modest library of transplant ID articles um, at Tufts when I was there also that was for the fellows. I'm like, why are, why are we why are we 
making all, having all this redundancy? Why do we have to reinvent the wheel? So I moved this online to transplantid.net, which is moderately searchable. And it's through, a, it, it's through an open source bibliographic software called Zotero. And with the generous support of the ID community practice at the American Society for Transplantation, it has then turned into a working group. So I chair this working group and I have about 15 wonderful and devoted volunteers. And what I do is every month I send them automated emails to say, can you please, can you please look at this journal and send me any articles that may be of interest for the, uh, for the community at large and send them to me. And then I will, I'll go through them, discuss them with the person who sent it to me and possibly add it to the library and also tweet about it um, at TransplantIDNet through Twitter as well. The major purpose of the library, the primary focus we're thinking of is bedside clinical utility, which sort of goes hand in hand with fellow training. And there's always going to be some differences of opinion as to sort of what should be included as well. And as this is growing and I'm getting more input from my, from my colleagues who are generously supporting this venture, you know, we're getting the, the vision of this should start to continue to uh, get clearer and clearer. And so this is something that I'm hoping will continue to have further utility, particularly in training, as well as for clinical reference. And I mean, one of the things I think people use it for is, oh, I remember that this was published in, in this New England Journal article. What were the inclusion criteria for the, you know, the posaconazole prophylaxis study in neutropenia? And mm-hmm. you know that it's mm-hmm. there. And then it yeah. saves everybody a lot of the effort. And that's sort of, I think, half of the use of it. And the other half is really to really be a resource where you got a patient with mucormycosis and you go to the mucor folder, and then you can find a few reviews on it and, and guidelines and case definitions and so on. It, the site is, uh, we have an intrepid web programmer who's going to turn it into a fancier, hopefully more user-friendly site. So please watch the space. And if anybody who is listening to this, who's a member of the ID community practice would like to contribute to this, please contact me. You can find me on Twitter or TransplantIDNet on Twitter. Um, also, there is a dedicated email for it, transplantid.net at gmail.com. So transplantid.net at gmail.com. So any of you who would like to participate in it, many hands make light work. The meetings are relatively infrequent. And for trainees, this goes on your CV. This is service to the society. So, and this is also a way of networking and meeting with a bunch of really lovely and hardworking people, many of whom are quite prominent in the field. Yeah, one of the really uh, terrific things about our field is that it is small enough to be um, a community, but growing so that it's not it's not too small. So, uh, this is a great opportunity to be part of that community and to uh, start developing the network. And it is a really welcoming community. And I have to just say that the people that everybody is very approachable and everybody is is fun and willing to talk. And so I, I find that it was it is a great networking opportunity and a learning opportunity. And those of you who are junior should not be intimidated. You can go to these meetings and just just walk right up to somebody whose articles you've been reading for 20 years and they will have a conversation with you. It's really lovely to see. Yeah, you know, there's. Uh, I, I always say that transplant patients are just like everybody else, except more so. So I would say that transplant infectious disease doctors are just like infectious disease doctors, but more so. <laughs> uh, 
so um, switching gears a little bit, you two were recommended to me for this podcast, and it was it wasn't a hard sell by uh, one of the deans at Einstein about because uh, he had mentioned the uh, work that you had done with an HIV to HIV heart transplant and the groundbreaking nature of it. Are you able to uh, tell me a little bit about what happened there and how you approached it and anything you want to talk about? Sure. So she was my my patient. I had initially had seen her declare for a, a kidney transplant, um, which I I did. But when her turns came up on the lip, and she was going to receive a whole back transplant, as you know, I mean, I mean you know, the, the, the study run out of Hopkins. But when her turn came up, she had developed she developed heart failure, and so when she was evaluated by our heart transplant team, they felt that her that her only chance was a dual heart kidney. Um, the problem being that her heart failure was basically being managed by dialysis. So her status on the list was such that she would have been status five, which basically means you would probably never get an organ. And so, and so she sort of was in this situation for a while. And then we happened to do enough HIV negative donor, positive recipient heart transplants to meet the requirements for volume to be approved to do a positive to positive transplant. And then once we did all the regulatory requirements, we actually got an offer within a week and the patient had a complicated course, but um, is actually doing really well right now. Great. So the so you have done HIV, people with HIV who uh, were uh, in heart failure and required a heart transplant mm-hmm. from uh, HIV negative donors, but this was the first time. And was it the first in the world of the sort? Yes. And, and so, so tell me about how that feels as a doctor to be doing something that nobody's. I mean, we've been practicing medicine for you know ten thousand years. I don't know how long, and so the first time ever of anything. Yeah, very nerve wracking. Mm-hmm. Um, I was really happy for, for the patient, though. I mean, it's 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 one thing to be the physician, but the patient actually has to go through it. And and um, I mean, I, I don't. I can't even imagine how nerve wracking that is. Mm-hmm. Can I tell you another? view on this. I had the privilege of also being in, involved um, in this case, although Vagish really spearheaded it, both intellectually and from the regulatory perspective. On the flip side of it, in many ways, it was really just managing a routine heart kidney transplant, mm-hmm. which is part of the irony of all this because it is, it's very new. And yet these are both, both of the major issues, the transplantation and the HIV are things that are, are complex yet day-to-day for what we do. So I think, mm-hmm. so it's nerve wracking and yet ironically, you know, when she had some post-op complications, these are the post-op complications that we see in post-transplant patients mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and nothing really out of the ordinary. So that, that's also part of that. That's part of the flip side of this, I think. Yeah. It's uh, it, it, one of the things that's sometimes nice about doing research is that you're allowed to go a little bit slower it, it's not one of the 20 patients that you're seeing that day. You can really focus some more of the efforts. And at the same time, it, it is what you're doing. It is a heart transplant. It is somebody with HIV. You know how to manage both of those things. Precisely. The, the amazing thing, though, is, as you know, only, I mean, fewer than 100 people in the United States who with HIV have received a heart transplant, which is probably much less than the number who with advanced heart failure who would benefit from it. Mm. It's still an exclusion criteria at many centers. So heart transplant is something that you guys have been working on for a while. And one of the things that 
is, is a challenge is uh, the patients that are waiting for a heart transplant or sometimes even as a destination have a left ventricular assist device. And both of you guys have done some work on uh, diagnosing and treating that. I saw, Yoram, you've published a little bit on uh, diagnosis. Tell us about that. Yeah. So part of the issue is how do you, you got a driveline infection and what are you going to do about it? And part of the the question is, is this medical disease or surgical disease or or both? I mean, all certainly mm-hmm. the first time that that patient walks into your office and says, hey, doc, there's there's this brown stuff coming from my driveline, you know, your heart sinks, you get the swab, and then you find out what the bug is. But then the next stages after that wind up being, once again, sort of a big multidisciplinary collaboration, usually involving the surgeons to try to figure out what can you do next. And I think what what happened was, and a number of centers have sort of stumbled on this independently, we've tried to figure out, well, how how bad is this infection? How deep does this go? And I think this is where having a very, um, not just a multidisciplinary approach, but also where everybody just communicates very openly and is very approachable, can generate good ideas. I went to medical school with one of our nuclear medicine attendings. Mm-hmm. And when we were running into some issues of this early on, we were just discussing modalities uh, of diagnosis. And one of her preferred was the gallium scan. And so this wound up being this wound up being a, a project where we were looking at our use of gallium scans for LVAD infections. And this is very helpful. And, and other nuclear scans also um, are quite helpful as well for any listeners who have other preferred modalities at your institutions. Um, and a PET scan is would be superior, except they're they're expensive and hard to get, and insurance may deny them, and all all the usual reasons for it. So the problem is with most scans, there are there's either limitations or artifact. The hardware itself causes a lot of artifact in CAT scans, which really prevents you visualizing any level of detail at all of collections or fluid around the drive line. Plus, it could be a relatively small biofilm that causes a lot of trouble, and ultrasound. Uh, certainly has limitations in terms of resolution. So this is where functional studies like nuclear medicine came in. And this is where discussion with a bunch of different people, different expertise yielded this strategy. So what we were able to do was just start to develop sort of an informal algorithm of using a gallium scans to determine the the extent of the infection. Mm -hmm. Um, For those of you not familiar with it, um, it's radioactive gallium citrate, which is taken up by metabolically active cells. This mm-hmm. includes bacteria, fungi, and neutrophils. And, and also for those of you dealing with neutropenic patients, it is useful in neutropenic patients because it's not dependent on the neutrophils themselves. A lot of the other nuclear mm-hmm. scans involve having tagged neutrophils. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and the gallium scan is a bit cheaper than some of the other modalities as well. So we did the gallium scan and then we said, well, do we, you know, does this really work? And we had to sort of go back and look at whether it really affected our management or not. And mm-hmm. we did find that, yes, we had patients where they looked okay, they were quite stable, but it turns out that the that the gallium scan could visualize a biofilm going a fair distance up the driveline or possibly even going up to the pocket. Mm-hmm. Um, the pocket as an anatomical space is sort of more specific to the HeartMate 2. The HeartMate 3s don't really have quite the same pocket anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but And this was something where that information might be enough to, to evaluate the risk-benefit of the surgeon doing the uh, washout and the rerouting. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. It, so it's starting to, and I think a, a lot of places are also coming, have, 
have worked on this independently, and we found that it's been really very useful in trying to determine um, whether you have surgical disease and the benefit of and the uh, the benefit of surgical interventions. And sometimes you have a patient that has a lot of local drainage, and the pets and sorry the gallium scan uh, shows almost no additional extent. So you're like, okay, I thought that could be surgical disease, but I guess not. Mm-hmm. And then you do then then you work on your antibiotic suppression until whatever the next step is. Um, and this is once again, this this is I think we're able to do a lot of these studies just because we happen to be in an environment, I think, where everybody is open and trusts everybody else's expertise. And so the surgeons and the nukes people were all a pleasure to work with on this. Great. So, and do you have a, um, an algorithm that you follow or is it more of you go and you see the patient and then you have a discussion? Um, it's a bit individualized. Um, and we do have the discussion, but honestly, if, if all we have is the question, how far up does this infection go? Mm -hmm. Then, then they wind up getting the gallium scan. Mm -hmm. If they're bacteremic and we think it's associated with the LVAD, they may also get the scan as well. The one limitation being that if there's actually an infection within the device itself, the uh, the foreign bodies are going to prevent us from being able to visualize the, the radioactivity from the gallium if mm-hmm. there are actually an infection directly on the rotor, but anything else you should be able to see. And, you know, you can see the outflow tract. Sometimes there's biofilms around there that may surprise you. And one thing is we have occasionally used it to try to move people up on the list. Mm-hmm. If they don't necessarily meet the specific written criteria for UNOS of who has an LVAD infection. And there's some very specific criteria that do not include radiographic findings at all. So we've been able to ask for exceptions for this. I've actually done a survey that I have to process the data on looking at people's feeling about whether these criteria reflect reality as to who has an LVAD infection that should make them that should make them a status three. Great. So I, I think that this could be a real uh, advance in terms of uh, treatment of LVADs, which is an increasingly used modality. So fantastic. Thank you. Uh, Everybody out there, feel free to please, please uh, if you haven't investigated these as diagnostic modalities, give it a shot. And switching gears to, uh, so this is very high tech, switching gears to something that's a little bit lower tech. And you two have published on methanamine. Tell me about that study. Dagish, do you want to take it? Sure. So, I mean, recurrent yeast hazardous are a really common problem after a kidney transplant. I, I mean, there's a lot of reasons for that. Many of it's anatomic, your ureteral you know, uh, reflux. And some of them may be related to, you know, the immune expression and then the already supposed transplant diabetes. Um, and it could be a challenge to manage. And then, I mean, the traditional treatments been suppressive antibiotics. Sometimes for women, if they're postmenopausal, using topical vaginal estrogen. The problem with the antibiotics, of course, is that you're you're selecting out for resistance. And when I was in, when I was in Texas, I mean, that was that was my standard go to move was suppressive antibiotics, but then people start getting colonized with ESBLs. Um, and then I, th- I think I had one or two patients on like weekly phosphamycin, but you know, it has a lot of drawbacks. Now, the nice thing about methenamine is it's converted to formaldehyde in the bladder. So it's not an antibiotic mm-hmm. um, and it's not, you're not going to get resistance. And so we had a number of patients here who that, who, for whom that was used. And we've shown that, and Dr. Puyas and a fellow um, had, had collected their, their, their data and we looked at it and analyzed it and showed the decrease in UTI incidence after initiation of methenamine. 
So um, what would be uh, some candidates for methanamine from your practice? Well, one of the things we show is that it seemed to be, per- it, I mean, it's, it's a single center retrospective study. This would have to be, you know, replicated in another cohort, but it seemed that diabetic patients of whom we have many um, seem to particularly benefit mm-hmm. from methanamine. Mm-hmm. And um, we speculated as to maybe it might be a microbiome effect, which would make sense. You would think formaldehyde would affect the microbiome, right? Mm-hmm. Um but but that that seemed to be the, the patients that we particularly we 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 use it very broadly, but the, the, they seem to be the ones it, it has the most benefit in. I think an important subgroup analysis also that Vagish had done was to look at patients with lower creatinine clearance. Mm-hmm. So methanamine hippurate is really labeled for patients with a creatinine clearance of I think greater than thirty or fifty. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of based on some older data, actually, that showed toxicity, but they were also for higher doses. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we had been sort of pushing the boundaries of that. And this was something where we found that we were using it even in patients that had a lower, significantly lower creatinine clearance, and it still seemed to maintain efficacy. So when Vagish did, we, you know, was, was able to do a very sophisticated subgroup analyses, and he was able to confirm this, which is good because when you are using something that is so off, off label, um, you want at least something to back up this practice. And so that was very reassuring because the the concern is that if the levels in the bladder aren't high enough, then it's not going to, then it's not going to work. You need to have enough methanamine there for it to break down into the uh, ammonia and formaldehyde. So that was an, that was an additional finding. So we were able to uh, build a little bit on some findings complementary to some things that Mike Eisen's group um, had found. I know you had him on recently as a guest as well. Thanks. Uh, it's so important to look into that subgroup of patients with reduced renal function because it is uh, something that gives us pause when we prescribe it, but that is also the group that often so badly needs it. I think we've all had women, particularly women with recurrent urinary tract infections who uh, they run their immunosuppression a little bit lower to try to fight the 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 episodes of urinary tract infections, they have rejection. Perhaps the antibiotics that they've gotten over the years are causing some of their renal dysfunction as well. So having them receive a non-antibiotic option is very uh, appealing. But again, that package insert scares us away. There's also that long-term concern about bladder cancer, obviously. Um, you know, one of my goals at in 2020 had been to look at the USRDS, which is like Medicare data, um, and try to see if patients who were prescribed methanamine had a higher rate of, of bladder cancer, because you have longitudinal data for many years with that data set. Like many people in March of 2020, I got sidelined by other things um, yeah. and, and have never gotten back to it, but it's, I still have the data and it's still something I want to look at long-term. Now, one of the things with, uh, and I think I, I think that's, that's that is a, a concern that some patients have raised to me. They, they said formaldehyde. Wow, that sounds kind of carcinogenic. Is that what I want in my body? And so I've actually looked at methanamine, and and I think in some situations they were using that as a sensitizer for treatment of cancers. But oncology is a little bit beyond my area of expertise. What about vitamin C? Do you give vitamin C along with it because of the uh, the need for a an acidic urine? Yeah, I mean, that's necessary because for it to actually to break down, you need a low pH. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, we do run into some intolerance issues with this and so on. So there are patients that have some GI intolerance issues of either methanamine or the vitamin C or the combination. Mm-hmm. Um, you could take it with, you could certainly take it with food though. 
but you but you do need the low pH, and you know every once in a while it falls off, and then and then it it probably has lower efficacy. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Great. So we have just a few minutes left, and I wanted to uh, ask you a little bit about Chagas and a little bit about mucormycosis in India. Who wants to take either one of those two? I guess I'll take the Chagas. Saying that we have a significant amount of experience with Chagas is always hard to, it's really hard to sell in, in the United States um, mm-hmm. because it's always, you know, a case here, a case there. The the Montefiore patients are from a wide variety of, of countries. Um, you know, we're in the Bronx, which is a country of a million people in and of itself. And we do have certainly a large patient population that's from a Chagas endemic area. And so, um, especially given that we're a heart transplant referral center for the area, um, we do get referrals for patients and we do get Chagas every once in a while. We get a, a genuine Chagas cardiomyopathy. And uh, then we've had the pleasure of trying to monitor them po- in the post-transplant setting and check them for reactivation. And my colleague, Dr. Hemige, has had the privilege of even trying to treat some of these patients. We actually had a, a local Chagas expert at the medical school, Dr. Herbie Tanowitz, who unfortunately died a few years ago. We do have another parasitologist there, Dr. Christina Coyle, um, who we do work with closely as well. But um, we certainly have logistical challenges for managing them uh, on our side as well. And I think Dr. Hemige has had the, the privilege of doing of, of filling out all the paperwork for treatments most recently. <laughs> yeah, last month, actually. Although, you know, it's, it is FDA approved now, as many listeners, as the listeners on this would know, um, it was not FDA approved for many years and it, and it had to get tamed through the CDC. Great. And what drug is this that you're referring to? Um, that's not as all. Great. And, uh, and then in uh, the last couple of minutes, uh, can you tell us a little bit about your interactions with colleagues in India for the mucormycosis outbreak? Oh yeah, so um, there. You know, as you know, if, during India's ma- major COVID wave, there there was a, there were a, a huge number of cases in mucormycosis seen, and um, a colleague of ours here, who's a hospitalist here but was a practicing ENT surgeon in India, collected the characteristic of a large number of the cases that they saw and steroid exposure. I think a, lo- a lot of you know we use steroids for patients with COVID. Uh, very, very frequently here, but a lot of patients seem to be getting steroids as an outpatient because of because of local practice and lack of resources during a during a massive wave and in the setting of a population that has high rates of diabetes. And that was this and the suspicion that was that, that was, was was driving um this this outbreak. And we just sort of described the clinical cases and the outcome. Fantastic. Well, thank you guys so much for uh, joining me and look forward to having additional conversations in the future. I think that I will definitely be going back to you guys for more conversation on uh, where science and education and clinical care meets with transplant infectious disease all happening in the Bronx. Thank you so much for having us on your podcast.